Métis people, we use a lot of color in our beadwork. We're very colorful people as it is, and so we infuse that into our artwork. And we're known as the flower beadwork people because all of our clothing traditionally was very heavily adorned with these very beautiful, intricate flower patterns. That's Amy Briley, community-based Métis arts educator. Amy is also a published author. She is our guest today on PQK, the Métis Culture Podcast, brought to you by the Métis Nation, Saskatchewan, and Canadian Geographic. Welcome, Pictigwe Tanshikia. I'm Leah Marie Dorian. I'm a Métis artist and writer living near Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and the host of Pikiuke. Pikiuke means come and visit, and on this series we invite you to join us as we go on a journey. Exploring our rich Michif language and Métis culture. Tanshe. Tanshe. Pistigwe. Rubaboo. Tagihituin. Over 10 episodes, we travel to Métis communities all over Saskatchewan, talking with Michif elders, educators, artists, and cultural leaders, and learning about what they are doing to keep the Michif language and culture vibrant and alive for future generations. Masi, enjoy. On this episode of Pikioke, I'm so happy to welcome Amy Briley. She is a leading expert on one of the defining Métis art forms, our traditional Métis-style beadwork and sewing. Working through the Gabriel Dumont Institute, Amy is proud of her work helping people connect with their Métis roots, traditions, and the Michif language through traditional crafts and contemporary sewing projects. She is the co-author of several books on beading, including Learn to Bead, published by the Gabriel Dumont Institute. Born and raised in Saskatoon, Amy traces her roots through the Dumont family. Amy Briley, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you asking me and it's always lovely working with you, so thank you. Amy, can you tell us about yourself, where you grew up, and a little bit about your Métis heritage? Yes, absolutely. So I was born and raised in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. My family has been in Saskatoon for over a hundred years. So my grandfather, um, who is, his mom was a Dumont and um, she married a Gallagher. And so my grandfather was a Gallagher. Oddly though, at birth, she named him uh, Joseph Dumont. And then he changed his birth certificate much later in life and around his 30s or so. So I assume that maybe they weren't married at the time, but they were together in some way. So my grandpa moved into Saskatoon um, from a, they lived on a farm just outside the city of Saskatoon. Um, but of course, we come from the Batoche area from down in Montana, the Dumont line is kind of all over Saskatchewan, but we do come from that line, the line of Dumont's. And I grew up in Saskatoon, my dad grew up in Saskatoon, and so we have really rooted in the Métis community here um, and have been for a really long time. It's such a beautiful river community. It's a natural transition from Batoche to the beautiful Saskatoon with that South Saskatchewan River. Absolutely. Amy, we both love Métis beadwork, and I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, you know, if what you feel Métis beadwork is means to us in our Métis culture. So I've always admired any style of material art, particularly um, our Métis material arts, and beadwork was always one that spoke to me. And whenever I would look in museums, particularly the Gabriel Dumont Institute Museum, and I would see beadwork, it was I was always drawn to it, the beauty of it, the colors, the patterns, everything about it. Um, 
but it wasn't something I, I knew how to do from my childhood. I wasn't taught how to do beadwork from anybody in my family. I learned later on when I came to the Gabriel Dumont Institute. But beadwork to us is a way to express ourselves, to a way to um, be an artist through our material culture. So when we adorn our moccasins and our vests and our jackets with beadwork, we're really putting ourselves into that. And one of the things I think about our our beadwork is that we often don't keep it for ourselves. We gift it to other people. And so we put the extra effort into making sure that it's beautiful and perfect because you're giving it away to somebody that you know will really love it and wear it and honor it. So I think that's um, that's for beadwork for me, it's just a beautiful part of my culture and um, a way to express myself artistically. You know, Amy, um, Sherry Ferrell-Rosette has been a real advocate for our Métis style, the flower beadwork style. Can you tell our listeners about the Métis floral beadwork, a little bit about that history of why we're so floral? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) why are we so floral? (laughs) Exactly. Um, Métis people are known as the flower beadwork people. Um, We infuse floral patterns into our artwork and have for a very long time. And um, we've adopted that style as our own and to put these colorful flowers and patterns together. And often traditional or historical beadwork will be very symmetrical and mirror imaged. Um, These great big beautiful patterns, but you'll see that they'll be They'll be similar on either side and maybe not identical, but very similar. And Métis people, we use a lot of color in our beadwork. And so we're very colorful people as it is. And so we infuse that into our artwork. And yeah, we're known as the flower beadwork people because all of our clothing is very heavily or traditionally was very heavily adorned with these very beautiful, intricate flower patterns on them. Which brings me to ask you another question, because I'm so curious. Do you have a favorite floral beadwork pattern? I'm curious. Yeah, um, I think if I had to pick a favorite, I love a very symmetrical five petal flower. And that's probably because that's the first flower I ever made. And it's a very traditional flower. And it's very... um, prominent in lots of traditional beadwork and so you see it in a lot of beadwork patterns on clothing and so that's probably my favorite is a five a small five petal flower but I also do like to do something that's multi-dimensional and that has a lot of um, layers to it so from time to time I'll do a larger piece that has lots of leaves overlapping each other um, so that you can see some dimension to it. Thank you, Amy. I have to admit that's my favorite pattern. My grandmother, that was the first pattern she taught. And in our community, uh, that's the first pattern all the young girls learn is the five-petal flower, usually the pink wild rose. Oh, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And that's often the, well, not often, but that's the one we always teach at a beginner. So Wapikwini is about that five-petal flower, getting your petals shaped very evenly and creating this really beautiful um, little flower. Yeah. What, that's why I think when your book first came out, my ju- I just jumped. I'm like, it's such a great entry point. They're teaching yeah. what we teach and here, and we're not, I didn't even know you were working on the book. You're right, yeah. And we cross-supported, even two Métis people have the same teachings from different communities. Amy, you know, one of the things that um, 
a lot of communities, we almost lost the art in some families. Did any beadwork survive in your family, like through the generations? Or are you the first to like bring it back into your family? You know, um, I don't have any type of uh, beadwork that was given to me through my family. We don't have any of that, so it, it didn't survive through us. And that's a lot of things about our culture, not just our beadwork and material art, but our language. Right? You know, I don't speak my language, unfortunately. But so, no, it's something I had to pick up later. And um, when I had the opportunity to learn how to do beadwork, it kind of flowed out of me really naturally, as if it's always been inside of me. But I just needed to release it and to have somebody show me how to do those steps. And then it just kind of poured out of me as if it's always been in there. Awesome, Amy. We learned somewhere. We learned from someone. Can you tell me uh, who you learned from when you learned this art form? Yeah, I've been really lucky and I'm very grateful to be gifted this um, process of doing beadwork and any type of material art that we do. Um, so I've been working at the Gabriel Dumont Institute for, I want to say 15 years now. And one of the things that I always do whenever I share my beadwork or I teach other people how to do beadwork, I always make sure I credit three sources, I will say. Number one, first and foremost, is the Gabriel Dumont Institute for giving us the opportunity. So that was Karen Schmann, and she really recognized the importance of transmission of cultural knowledge. And so she gave us the time and the space to be able to do that. And she took advantage of the fact that we had Gregory Schofield here doing work with us for something. And she, it was separate. We were doing a book with him or, or some readings with him. And there was some extra time in a day. And she said, you know, if you guys want to go and sit in the boardroom, take the beading supplies that we've had and we've been holding on to all this time. And Gregory's going to teach you how to bead. And so I took advantage of that. And so it was such a great opportunity to walk away from my desk, go sit and be able to pick up these materials for the very first time, hold them and learn about how to do beadwork. So of course, after I credit Gabriel Dumont Institute and Karen Schmann, I have to give credit to Gregory Schofield because he's the one who really sat with me and helped me hone the craft and really worked with me and with patience. And he would it was almost like he would sit and he would, he's so good at this. He tells stories as he's teaching. And so you get lost in his stories and all of a sudden you're doing beadwork and then you'll show a piece to him and he'll say, oh yeah, that's really nice. And he'll help you out a little bit and then he'll go right back into his story. So it's really this kind of kitchen table, kind of sit around beading circle mentality um, that we that we had the opportunity to do. And so Greg, from that one day, um, he left. He wasn't living here in Saskatoon. So he went home. And the next time he was in Saskatoon, I was able to show him some of my pieces. And I was super excited. And he thought they were really good. And so um, I credit Gregory for his patience with me, for giving me the opportunity and showing me the steps on how to do it one after another. And then third, always, and maybe one of the most important ones is the women, the Métis women of my past who were bead workers. And now when I look back through my own family tree, um, and you ask that, like, where did I get the, do we have anything that survived in our family? We, ha we don't. 
but it did exist in our past. And so I have Métis women in my family tree who lived through the fur trade and their role was creating beautiful pieces of clothing that they would bead and they would do quill work on and they were incredible women that um, were really the backbone and foundation a lot of the time for their families during the fur trade and they would provide income to their families by selling their work so that is where I feel that it lives inside of me and I've been able to channel it and then had a teacher like Gregory show me how to do the process of it and then the opportunity that was presented to me through my work at Gabriel Dumont Institute. So those are by far the three people and the three sources that I credit for having this gift that I've been given. And I really feel, Leah, that it's a gift. It's something that I have to be mindful that it's not just something I do, it's something that's been given to me and I need to really respect that and I need to make sure that I'm also sharing that gift with others so it doesn't just end with me. Amy, you've really spoken to our traditional cultural beliefs of if you know something, you have a skill gifted to another Mm -hmm. community member. Thank you for sharing that. You also made me think of how so many of our women had to sell their work and it ended up in private collectors' hands. And I sure hope that those Dumont pieces eventually find their way back as we yeah. reclaim and go through reconciliation. Yeah, absolutely. Amy, I'm curious about that first piece. I, I What pattern did you learn and how did you move through the psychology of it to get oh, it finished? That, that's such a cool question, Leah, because I still have my very first piece. I've given away almost everything I've ever made, but I do keep some small pieces and they're not my best work but they're the ones that mean the most right so my first piece when we came together Gregory and I he took out a piece of paper and it was like a cardstock paper and he drew out this perfect five petal flower and he gave it to me and he said this is your template and it's your little piece of gold our templates are like little pieces of gold that we keep we have a little you know, a container or a pouch or somewhere we put them all in. And then when we go to do a new piece, we pull from them and we use them. Um, So my first piece was a five petal flower with a very terribly shaped leaf that was um, too fat and not, (laughs) didn't have a pointy end. And um, it was on a little piece of ultra suede and I folded it and I made a little pouch and that actually is my template pouch. So it's not very big. I sewed a little button on it and every time I make a new template, I tuck it into my, you know, with my other pieces of little pieces of gold and I keep those. So my very first piece was a little tiny bag that now holds all my little templates. That is like really old school, Amy. I am so proud of you for practicing old (laughs) school ways of doing your work. That's really important. Now, for doing, you've done a lot of workshops. Do you have a memorable community workshop that you led? And can you share with our listeners what it was like teaching at that community workshop? Yeah, Um Every workshop that we do is special in some way or another. I think the ones that are really strongly meaningful to me and um, are the ones when I go to the SunTEP students and the SunTEP centers, because I am a SunTEP grad and I was that SunTEP student that sat there and was able to listen to elders and have people come in and teach us things. And so when I go back, um, I really remember what it was like to be a student 
learning to become a teacher and now teaching those soon to be teachers on their culture and their you know art form that they can reclaim for themselves as well so I really like when I go into a classroom of SunTap students because it's like coming home for me and as you will know um, once you're part of SunTap you're always part of SunTap you're always part of that family you're always part of that community so it's really nice when I can go back um, and teach those SunTap students. Thank you Amy to acknowledge our SunTap they're such an important um, place to learn about being Métis, for our, yeah. especially for our urban Métis, and reclaiming mm-hmm. our arts. I think that's yeah. so vital. Amy, we, um, we know that you've been writing and doing a lot of books, and I think a lot of our community here really appreciates the two books. You co-authored two books uh, with G- Gregory Schofield, of course, yeah. and you did the Moccasin book and the Métis Floral Beadwork book. Can yeah. you tell us about that process? I want to hear the backstory about making those books. Yeah, absolutely. So when that first session that I sat down with Greg and the first time I learned to bead and then he went home and he came back and I actually, now that I think back and um, you know, it's funny how these memories just come back to you at the right time, but he came back later and it was Batosh. It was back to Batosh days. And um, we did a workshop together at Back to Batosh teaching how to do beadwork. And I remember on the drive out there um, sitting and thinking, you know, wouldn't it be great if we did a book for this because we're teaching it in our community but why not create a resource that a hands-on resource that um, people can take and use and learn this if they don't have access to a Gregory Schofield or they don't have access to an Amy Briley to teach them but they want to learn so we wanted to create something that could be really a walk through but our voice like Gregory's voice teaching you how to be there or teaching you as if he was there teaching you and um, so it was back to Batosh and we had this conversation I don't even remember who came up but it could have been it probably was Greg's idea or maybe it could have been Karen Schmond's idea I honestly can't remember but we said we're gonna do this and Greg said well I'm gonna I want to do it and that's a great idea but I want to do it with Amy and so I was really honored that he would say that at that time because I didn't think of myself as somebody that had honed this craft and been I'm not a skillful bead worker yet and I keep practicing to get better but he he wanted to me to work on that book with him and so that was our first book Wapikwini and it's one of it's my baby it's the one that I look on back on and think that was my first resource but also I have such a strong connection to it through my cultural voice that we could put into a resource that other people could use so we did that one and um, we also decided that a lot of people are visual learners, so as much as you have a book with lots of um, imagery, it would be nice to have a compatible CD with it that we, or DVD, I suppose, um, that you would watch us walking through the steps. And so we did that. Gregory came back and we filmed in our little tiny museum. At the time, we were at a different uh, office building and we had this tiny little museum we staged it and um, I even remember and I laugh about this now because I don't know if we would do it the same we went and borrowed an old time outfit from the Western Development Museum and they fitted me for it and I looked like this prairie kind of 1885 <laughs> woman but <laughs> that I was doing beadwork but it fit the set at the time and um, it was really cute and I'm glad we did it that way um, 
but it was a great experience to kind of sit down and film because I hadn't done anything work like that either. And David Morin, of course, was my technician then and still is today. And um, he filmed it for us. And I remember just being very nervous and very, you know, I needed cue cards, I needed things, and I needed Gregory to remind me what to say and how to show how to do that. So that was our first book. And then I remember um, for our book too, Muskisina, Gregory had been doing a lot of moccasin making at that time. I know that he was really turning out a lot of moccasins and trying really hard to make these different styles of moccasins. And um, every, you know, week he would send me a photo and say, look at these new moccasins they made. Look at that. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. I would love to learn how to do that. So again, Greg came back to visit us in Saskatoon and did some work with us. And we decided that that would be our next book, how to make moccasins. But I think it's really important if I'm involved with the teaching of something that I have been taught how to do it and not just taught the process of it, but also the teachings behind it and learn about, you know, the cultural representation of it. It's not just sitting down and sewing a pair of moccasins. It's knowing that where this came from and, and, um, how important material art was and used for a long time. So when Gregory came back to Saskatoon and we decided that we would do our second book, Moccasin Making, um, we took a trip to Larange. And so again, another trip up north. So we, it was Karen Schmann, Gregory Schofield and myself riding up um, to Larange because Greg was going to do some readings there on behalf of GDI. And we decided that that would be a great time to get our hands on some actual moose hide. And so we went through PA and we stopped in PA and we, and Greg took the time again, really patient with me, showing me how to pick a good moose hide for for making moccasins and would show me, you know, this is beautiful hide, but it might be better for a jacket or a vest. We're looking for something specific to make moccasins with. And we need to be mindful of the size of it and everything. So he would, and how soft it was and how pliable it would be and how we could get, if we could get our needles through it really easily to do beadwork on. So we stopped in Prince Albert and we um, bought a moose hide and we put it in the back of this big rental Yukon that we had going up north because we knew we were buying moose hides. So we needed a vehicle that could accommodate that. And we went to PA and then we went to up to LaRange because Gregory was doing his readings there and we got there, you know, early evening around supper time and the moose hide you could smell it the whole drive up and our first stop was Robertson's because we wanted to see what they had at Robertson's um, for moose hide and beads and everything and of course my eyes just lit up and I was in the beads and picking up got all my new colors that I wanted to put on my moccasins and then we looked at they um, took us to the back where they had all this these moose hides and they let us pick through them and again Gregory carefully showed me what I'm looking for to pick a good moose hide so we bought another hide there too and then we headed back and we had supper and we went back to our hotel room and first thing we took these moose hides and we laid them out on the floor and that night Gregory measured my foot made me a moccasin template cut it out made one for himself and one for Karen and so that we could start making moccasins and he could teach me how to do it and so we were only there one night Gregory did his readings and we left the next day and I remember sitting in the vehicle as we were coming back to Saskatoon and just sewing on this moose hide and and stenciling out my 
flower that I wanted on it and and then um, beading this little flower and these cuffs because I wanted cuffed moccasins. So I did that all the way back to Saskatoon and I, I had my materials and of course Gregory had to go back home and um, till he would come next time and we would continue work on this book. I was to complete my moccasins but now he wasn't there with me but he's told me what I need to do. Um, so I remember sewing this moccasin together and it being very sloppy and turning it out and that you could see my stitches and it wasn't good. And I was like, oh, this is so frustrating because I've tried so hard. I've pulled so hard. I've made it as tight as I possibly can. And Greg looked at that moccasin and it's a hard lesson to learn, but we cut it apart. And he says, you're not going to be happy. I want you to learn properly. And we have, it has to be right. You know, it has to be a strong moccasin. So we cut that moccasin apart and I was just devastated because <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me all this work? But it was an important learning process to cut it apart and redo it. And then that was my first pair of moccasins. And Truthfully, Leah, I still have that pair of moccasins because as I say, I kind of keep my firsts. So I have the pair of moccasins and I still wear them. I can't wait to see those, Amy. You have to show me those one day. Absolutely, yeah. I'm going to remind you to do that. (laughs) Amy, you know, it's those resources just letting you know from the community work I've done. I've really had a lot of good feedback about those two books okay just so you know I want to pass that forward I don't know if I've said that to you I had students follow the steps I had people who were so isolated benefit from it who couldn't go to workshops so you've really contributed to our Métis community oh thank you Leah that means a great deal to me yeah Amy, I've had the pleasure of working on our new Métis style ribbon skirt book. Can you tell our listeners what our vision is and when they can see this resource that we've been working on in a different genre, which is sewing and textile genre? Yeah. Um, yes, Leah, we did this great Métis style ribbon skirt book with yourself and with Bonnie Johnson as the authors. And it's been such a great process to learn. Again, another um, sewing media that's not it's separate from beadwork or from other things um, to actually use the sewing machine now and cloth and to sew a, a new style ribbon skirt that's really been our own style for hundreds of years and really important that we reclaim that as our own and to showcase that Métis people wore ribbon skirts and it talks about why we wore them and the historical context but then also walks through the process of making them and they turn out to be these beautiful skirts so that's been a really great project to be working on with you and that book should be coming out also early 2021 it's again in the final uh, stages of production so we're really excited to be showcasing that early next year. We're going to just really have a great new year in the Métis community of Saskatchewan with the cultural arts resources, Amy. I'm really looking forward to celebrating the launch of all these great resources. So, Amy, now that you are getting um, further along in your beadwork skills, can you tell me um, what's your future vision for your, your to grow your artistic practice? That's a really good question, Leah. I'm always, I'm like a sponge. Anything that'll come at me, I will just be excited to grab a hold and try something new. Um, So 
there is a new book that Gregory and I have done and it's on Métis style bags and so we'll be putting that out very soon it's in the final stages of publication as you know like the steps to create a book it takes time and um, so we're almost through and so there's a little teaser about a third book that Greg and I have done together so we're excited about putting that one out early in uh, 2021 so it'll be ready very soon um, but for me you know just continuing to practice my beadwork I don't claim to be a perfect bead artisan you know I don't know uh, many people except maybe Gregory Schofield who have perfected the craft right absolutely <laughs> really and his has. beadwork is completely flawless and I always say another one of those things about our beadwork Leah is that there's this teaching about this the spirit bead and um, putting a bead in that doesn't necessarily fit so a row of green beads that has a brightly colored orange one right in the middle and it looks like it's not supposed to be there and it was a total mistake but in truth either we do those things intentionally or we allow them to organically happen and we don't change them because we're humbling ourselves to say we're not perfect and our beadwork isn't perfect and that's okay um, another teaching about that that I had too was that that little beadwork could be your signature you know as artists a lot of time you'll know you sign your name on the front of your painting or your drawing but we don't do that in our beadwork so putting a little um, spirit bead in is our way to say that's our work and it's our signature and a lot of times like I said we give away so much of our of our artwork that if it ever comes back to us or if we ever find it again that's our way of identifying and say that's my work and, and I put that speed uh, that spirit bead inside of there for that too so yeah that's a really good message is to put our own identity into our work and tell our own story. Amy, that just brings my, my spirits up today. I really, really feel winter is a time of beaters and how our beating is such a big part of this seasonal cycle. Um, do you have any um, favorite artists that you want to acknowledge besides Gregory? Like, I follow a lot of Christy Belcourt, uh, Sherry Farrell-Reset, um, some of my community beaters. Did you want to do a shout out to any who you always look to for inspiration? Yeah, for sure. Um, the Métis community has such amazing group of artisans in all facets not just beadwork but all kinds of mediums and definitely I often go to Christy Belcourt's art pieces to pull inspiration for my flowers from um, so I use Christy's work a lot as inspiration Sherry as you've said is a great uh, bead worker and I love to see anything that she posts I do have a few that I follow on Facebook and and social media and just like to see what they um but they post, but I think I would have to sit, send a shout out to anybody that I've ever taught how to do beadwork that they share with that. And so um, Ashley Shaw, who is a former SunTup student as well, she's often comes back and show me, shows me the things that she works on. She's like, thank you for teaching me how to do this. So shout out to anybody that I've taught to do beadwork that's kept it up and continue to practice since then. Absolutely. That's what we, we want to encourage. So, Amy, you've worked so hard on the Gabriel Dumont resources, and some of our listeners may want to go order the books. Can you tell them what steps and where to get their order placed? 
Absolutely. Uh, GDI has a shop on our website called shopgdins.org. If you just go to our website and click the shop button, you'll get all of our resources, including the beading book and the uh, moccasin making book and any ones that we come up with in the future. We also have an Amazon shop, so you can go to Amazon and look up. um, You can even just search by author name and both of those books will come up there as well. So, But the best place is probably to go to gdins.org go to our shop page and then we get it right away and we ship it out to you as soon as we can. Thank you, Amy. Can you share your advice to a beginner beadwork artist and maybe share some helpful hints for those new beginners? Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, so the first thing I always say is everybody can bead, you just need to try. So you might get frustrated and that's okay, um, but push through and keep practicing. I always, people walk away and they'll think that their beadwork isn't perfect or their flowers aren't perfectly symmetrical. I say you need to practice, keep practicing your skill. And if you do get frustrated, put that piece down. We don't want to be sewing. We don't want to be putting negative energy into any of our pieces, especially if we're gifting that to someone. So if you get frustrated, put it aside, go for a walk, leave it for a day or so, and come back to it when you're in the right headspace and mentality. So that's really important. We don't want to put any negative energy into our work. Um, Always overshoot. That means, you know, when you do a line of beads, you leave a little extra space after the last bead because your beads need to breathe. I always say beads are like people on a bus. They don't want to be crowded next to each other. They need space. Give them space to breathe. And so by giving yourself a little bit extra space at the end of a line um, to when you're tacking down your beads to let them breathe, your patterns will just lay nice and flat and they won't climb on top of each other and get crowded. They don't like that. So that'd be my best advice. I love your metaphor. I'm going (laughs) to borrow that if you don't mind. Uh, Amy Briley, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and experience with us uh, through the podcast. It's been a real honor, Leah. I appreciate you asking me. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Picky UK. Come and visit a Métis Nation of Saskatchewan and Canadian Geographic podcast. Picky UK is produced by David McGuffin, of Explore Podcast Productions. Our opening and closing theme music is by Métis Fiddler, Adam Daniel, and me, Leah Dorian. And if you enjoy this podcast, give us a five-star rating or write a review. Also, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and tell your friends about us on social media. I'm Leah Marie Dorian. Until next time, keep up the midden. See you later. 